This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, you'll get an inside look at the San Luis Obispo County Regional Airport. The airport actually just acquired 4.4 acres across the street on Farmhouse Lane. So what we hope to do is make that a consolidated rental car facility. Also, you'll hear from the author of a new book based on the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And their idea was to capture the media. That was their real target. And of course, the failure to ransom Patty and then her decision to join and then fall in love with one of her kidnappers amplified the story. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, January 22nd, 2024. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with working lunch. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim D'Antona, CEO for the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce, and your host today, and this is The Working Lunch. The Slow Chamber has formed a direct partnership with KCBX to bring you these Working Lunch discussions. Each month, we will sit down with a member of our community to talk about doing business on the Central Coast. We hope you will join us for these conversations every month on KCBX's Issues and Ideas. Today, I'm so pleased to be sitting down with Courtney Penney. Courtney is the Deputy Director of Airports for Planning and Outreach for the Slow County Airport. Hello, Courtney. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jim. Thank you. The Slow Regional Airport opened in April 1939 as a single dirt runway. And in 1988, an air traffic control tower was added to the airport. Today, it is now one of the largest economic engines for our region. Courtney joined the County of San Luis Obispo organization in April of 2019 and became the deputy director of airports in January 2021. So, Courtney, working for the airport seems like an interesting job and and made even more interesting during the time that you've been there. But we'll get into that a little later. What was your education or career path that led you to become deputy director at the airport? Well, my career path, you know, I went to San Diego State and was a proud Aztec for four years and then pursued my master's degree in policy and public policy development. Um, So I had worked uh, for an agency down in Southern California um, for 15 years before I moved up to San Luis Obispo County. And I was assigned airports as soon as I got here and, you know, just kind of fell in love with it. The industry, the excitement. Um, at that time, the director, Kevin Buman at the time, Kevin was like, wow, Courtney, you know so much about government. Have you ever thought about working at the airport? And I told him, I was like, I don't know anything about aviation. Kevin's comeback was, you know a lot about government and a lot about uh, government structures. So I think you'd be a great fit and you're curious. Um, and I find that curiosity is leads me to success because it makes me ask questions and makes me dig into everything. Um, and that's how, how I got started. I'm sure everybody thinks in order to work at the airport, you have to be an aviation expert or know how the plane goes up, down, moves around. Right. But obviously, a lot of what happens at an airport is really administration or managing a team. And I wouldn't have guessed that public policy would have mm-hmm. led to that. But that seems like a great uh, path that's gotten you there. Right. You know, I think uh, a lot of our team didn't start in aviation. Um, we all have various backgrounds. Some are strong in accounting. Um, some have a lot of operational background. A lot of our airfield staff has a military background. Um, and it all feeds into it. So it it's a little city um, within itself, and we all need each other to make it work. So everything from human resources to property management to administrative uh, responsibilities, you know, everything makes the, the beast work. 
As the airport started into the new year in 2020, if you look at some of the statistics, they were on pace for an incredible year. But of course, March and COVID absolutely changed that. You know, travel industry became devastated. 2020 kicked off in a boom, right? And and we were cranking through. So if you look back at our statistics, um, we dropped significantly in the sense that in March of 2020, our numbers of passengers dropped down to about 2,000 passengers for the entire month. Um, which is devastating, like you said, to us, to the industry, to the economy locally, um, and what it means for all the destinations that we travel to. Uh, It was an eerie time in the airport. Um, There wasn't a lot of people there. You could hear a pin drop. Um, So it's been an exciting place to be as we kind of crawl ourselves out, um, you know, post-pandemic. And, you know, we've seen so much success, and I think we're so grateful to continue to see that success um, for ourselves as a facility and then also for the region because it it makes such a big impact. Really, we, we consider ourselves to be quite a big feeder for the region. 100%. 100%. We would agree. We're technically kind of on an island here, right? right. Very you much know, so. these, these connections to Dallas, Fort Worth, to Denver, to Seattle, to Portland are incredibly important for our business community right. to do work. And that's what was so shocking about 2020. You know, there were always those famous pictures of one person on a 737. And you're like, mm-hmm. wait, wow. What is that? <laughs> I was one who told my staff, Ah, it's going to be like two weeks and don't worry about it. But as that kept going and going and going, um, from an administration point, You know, our staff still came to the airport every day. We needed to do our inspections every day to make sure that the airport could open um, and operate safely, which is our number one priority. And so we didn't really go home. Um, We still worked through the pandemic. Everybody was all hands on deck all the time. Um, I think it was fair to say that uh, we, too, had the, oh, yeah, two weeks and we'll be back and start cranking again. And that wasn't the fact. Um, You know, we really started to see people regain confidence in travel starting in 2022. Um, And that's just continued. Again, with the rise in confidence of travel, you still see passengers now that um, travel with face masks on. That is not a mandate by the FAA, but that's something that, you know, individuals personally choose. Um, And that's really accepted now. And I don't think people frown upon it, which is really great. Three years later, here we are. 2020 looked like a small blip. So again, congratulations to your team for hanging in there and mm-hmm. pushing through because passenger level levels in 2020 were only like 269,000. But in 2021, immediately, boom, jumped up to four, over 400,000. In 2022, it was over 550,000. And then this year, which I think uh, you guys are just getting ready to finalize, somewhere north of 650,000 passengers go That's through correct. Slow County. So I guess things are feeling maybe back on track for the future. Is, is that how you guys are seeing it? Back on track, I think people, are, again, are regaining that confidence with travel. Um, what we're seeing is that passengers really want to make sure that the facility itself is clean. So our staff, um, you know, it's taking uh, a keen look at ensuring that the facility is clean from top to bottom. Um, but, you know, we are traveling now to seven different destinations and the aircraft are also getting larger. Um, I know that's been a fear for some people about, oh, that larger aircraft are coming, but they're already, in fact, here. Um, so by having larger aircraft, we are going to see our numbers um, go up. And as you mentioned, we are getting ready to release that number um, of our 2023 passenger count, and it is north of 650,000. And when we look at that growth in passengers, is that because more flights are coming in or the planes are getting bigger or kind of both? 
Um, good question. I think it's actually a little bit of both, right? So on a daily average, we see about 15 departures and 15 arrivals per day. Our kind of critical aircraft, so the ones that we see most often now, are the Abus 319s, and those hold an average of about 122 passengers. Um, and, you know, I... I wouldn't believe it if you told me, but man, those get full every time. Um, so we have packed flights that are going out of here. And, you know, again, we're really proud that we can provide that service and provide that level of access to our residents that are coming in, um, but then also going out, right? So, I mean, it's everybody from businesses to our universities are extremely popular, and we can't forget those um, in our businesses. Everybody is, is doing their part. I do take a lot of flights. Ah, six in the morning, 120, we'll be fine. It's going to be an empty flight. And it's always packed. Right. Which is so, I mean, it's so great to see because to me that shows, again, economic activity. If you're just joining us, I'm Jim D'Antona from the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce. And this is Working Lunch on KCBX. And we are here with Courtney Penne, the Deputy Director of Airports for Slow County Airport, talking about the issues impacting our county. The airport commission and staff just produced a new master plan for the airport. Um, what was the driving reason, reason behind the plan? And uh, do you anticipate that will allow for more flights or different airplanes? Or is it just more technical in terms of how you use the airport? Great question. So um, we're still actually in draft plan for that master plan. Um, it will be submitted to the FAA probably in a few months is what we hope. Um, but the master plan is really focusing on the facility and kind of what we need to move forward. So currently we are a group two airport and we're moving to a group three airport. Most importantly, what that is, is that in order to accommodate these larger aircraft that are being supplied by the airlines, not by us, um, we need to do these measures to make sure that we are in alignment with FAA guidelines. Um, so that really is speaks to the master plan um, and kind of what we foresee future um, development plans to look like. So it's not necessarily focusing on um, flights, but kind of what, what that means for our facility. We do have a very limited footprint, as you know. Um, so we're about 360 acres, um, and, and we can't really expand. So what do we do with it? Where does that look like? And um, where do those development projects need to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's there's always a... a conversation around town of, are they going to extend the runway? But there are two major <laughs> for, for <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, streets and highways Correct. abutting you on both sides. So there's not really that much. And, you know, you know, it seems like we're meeting the needs that our area has. So we don't need an Airbus 380, right, uh, to Correct. come land yeah. uh, on our airport in order Correct. to necessarily serve our community. Correct. Part of that master plan in looking at the use of space is that also including terminal space or how baggage handling is done? Is that, is that all part of that? Yeah, interesting that you mentioned baggage handling because that's actually a project um, that we'll be doing an on-site walk um, for next week. And so that's actually to add additional space for baggage handling, and that's really to help with the throughput daily. So when you know passengers check in their bags um, for their flights, we want to make sure that everybody can be accommodated. Um, so it's, it's looking at types of projects just like that. So I don't know necessarily if if residents will see an impact because of our master plan, but we ourselves on the airfield um, and our airline partners um, and different you know tenants and stakeholders, they'll see the impact. No conversation in San Luis Obispo we would be complete without a full discussion about parking. That's true. The most important issue <laughs> that it faces our community, I guess. Uh, 
Is any of the new plan creating increased parking or how's the airport staff envisioning that future? And yes, parking is an always a, a heated topic. Um, the airport actually just acquired 4.4 acres across the street on Farmhouse Lane. Um, and so what we hope to do is make that a consolidated rental car facility. Um, and so by moving the rental car facilities over um, off of Farmhouse Lane, that will really open up space again for more passenger parking. There could be future plans. I, we often hear the request of building a parking structure. Um, and that's always a hot topic. But in order to build a parking structure, um, that would be kind of at a detriment to us because, right, you can't really build a parking structure on your largest piece of land that is used for current passenger parking because then where would people go? Um, so really what we try to do is encourage folks to use various other types of transportation, whether it be social network, Uber, Lyft, anything like that, you know, multimodal transportation. We have a lot of interaction with Cal Poly and their planning classes right now. And recently some students asked me, they're like, hey, is there any chance that we could get bike lockers here? And so really kind of embracing just that different thought and multimodal transportation. Um, as a resident of Slow, right, I, I like to bike everywhere with my family. That's an option that we're looking at pursuing. Uh, we've definitely seen Uber and Lyft start to really, it used to be hard to even try to find, but now- Still hard. Yeah. Still, still hard, <laughs> but you can still do it. Uh, you yes. can do it now, which is great. But there isn't a prohibition from building a parking structure in that area. It's just the logistics of how you Correct. do it. And let's be honest, the Correct. financing of the financing structure. Is, is incredible. Um, you know, I think that, as I mentioned, we have an existing 360 acres. And if we can, you know, purchase more land to make parking happen, I think we will. Um, but as you know, there's not really land available around us. So uh, I think we're always waiting, chomping at the bit, but we are also realistic with what we have. So you and the strategic partners who help deliver those new flights to our airports are doing a fabulous job. Uh, the listeners wouldn't forgive me if I didn't ask about maybe future plans for flights. The air airport department doesn't control whether an airline decides to add a slow stop. And we just got that great new flight to Las Vegas that I'm very excited about for several reasons. <laughs> but most think about Vegas as a destination. I always think of it as like a hub because mm -hmm. everybody flies there, yeah. every airline, and it goes everywhere. And so are there key targets for the airport or how does the process work at the airport when thinking about those things? Sure. You know, um, passengers are, when they come to the airport and log into our Wi-Fi, we always ask, like, hey, you know, where would you like to go? In recent discussions with our air service consultant, because of the upgaging of aircraft, we're really focusing in on the current routes that we have and trying to maintain those strong partnerships with those other hubs and to make sure that people want to come to SLO just as bad as we want to, um, you know, provide the option for people to leave San Luis Obispo and our region. So really then you're making sure Dallas, making sure Correct. Phoenix, LA, Correct. San Francisco, all of those are those connections stay strong so that you don't lose any of those pieces. Correct, yeah. So we, you know, we definitely don't want to lose service. Um, and with the larger aircraft um, coming, we also know that, you know, it's it's our job to help fill those seats. Um, so we're, we'll be working on that extra hard in 2024. One of the things that came up about the airport in the past, and you talked about different size planes, is that sometimes planes had to be redirected because they couldn't. And that was something that was brought up, mm. 
I heard when I started. I don't hear that anymore. Is that technology being better, airport design better? Was that or was that not really an issue? We just a lot of chatter about it. Um, I personally feel like it was a lot of chatter. So it's actually up to the pilot's discretion if they choose to land or not. Um, Oftentimes people... We often hear it say, oh, it's too foggy in San Luis Obispo. We can't land. And that's the pilot's discretion again. So um, depending upon if the pilot's more tenured or not, they might feel confident. And then if they're you know, a younger pilot, maybe they don't feel that confidence level. And so the flight will be redirected. And, you know, sadly, that's always it causes hiccups for everybody. And, you know, us trying to troubleshoot on the back end. But it is ultimately the pilot's discretion. And as part of all of our working lunch programs, we talk about our family-friendly workplaces and what companies are doing to meet the challenge of retaining workforce. As you said, you got a ton of different operations in there. And you, the Slow County Airport, is advanced to the Blue Diamond level, our highest level award. Um, can you talk some about those practices you think have been the most valuable? Sure. I think from our standpoint, everybody wants flexibility. And so really trying to shift towards more of a flexible culture and to to do that with our operations. Our administrative staff can flex easier rather than our airfield staff um, and our operations staff. But, you know, really trying to meet that demand when we do recruitments uh, and tell people up front, you know, hey, you know, this is what the schedule is that we work off of. And when we do operations recruitments, tell people that we have a sizable team, sizable air quotes, that we like to make sure that everybody can take the time that they need. You know, for childcare, always one of the biggest struggles in San Luis Obispo. I think you help incentivize some of that um, and help your employees meet that uh, through reimbursements, correct? Correct. The different bargaining units within the county of San Luis Obispo, they can receive a stipend to help with child care. So that's that's huge for our staff and, and recognizing, too, that, you know, everybody has commitments outside of work. And really honoring those. My husband and I just had our first little boy. And I'm able to be the the type of mom that I want to be because the airport is such a supportive environment for that. And we really want to make sure that all of our staff can can be the type of parent they want to be and honoring those commitments. So I always like to end with a little bit of future forecast for our region. The airport's in a pretty special place because uh, I'm assuming you get travel projections from the industry and maybe directly from the airlines about their thoughts. Uh, What's your take on the next two to five years for our regional economy based on what the airport potentially is seeing? I anticipate, you know, if trends remain the way they do, um, we've seen a 19.4% growth from the prior year, so 2022 to 2023. Um, Very strong. And, you know, I cross my fingers that that nothing crazy turns the world upside down again, but um, we are on track for more success. And I think, again, all of our partners play a huge role in this. Everybody does their part. And I think that, um, you know, we'll continue to see a lot of success. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your thoughts. To you, our listeners, thank you for joining us on this important conversation. On behalf of Courtney Penne of the Slow County Airport, KCBX, and I'm Jim D'Antona for the Slow Chamber of Commerce, we hope you have an amazing week. Keep making our community a wonderful place to live. 
You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, if you like to garden or think you might want to learn, you can volunteer at one of the city parks in Santa Barbara. Contributor Beth Thornton talked with Jasmine LeBlanc, Assistant Director of the Parks and Recreation Department, to find out more about these volunteer opportunities. This is Beth Thornton. Earlier this month, about 150 volunteers showed up to trim the roses at the Rose Garden across from the Santa Barbara Mission. And now volunteers are at work in Alice Keck Park Memorial Garden. I went to the park to meet Jasmine LeBlanc to find out more about these volunteer opportunities. My name is Jasmine LeBlanc. I'm the Assistant Parks and Recreation Director for the City of Santa Barbara. And in my role, I help to oversee our our city's 60 parks and facilities, which range all the way from six miles of beaches to um, dozens of miles of front country trails up in the hills and all of the parks in between. Before we jump into conversation about the park we're sitting in today, let's do a little bit of a recap on uh, what happened last week at the Rose Garden. Yeah, wonderful. So the The um, Mission Historical Park has a wonderful rose garden that hundreds of thousands of people enjoy every year. And it takes um, not only a lot of work from the city parks and recreation staff, but also from a cadre of volunteers. So we do have year-round volunteers that help maintain our rose um, garden beds. But every year in January, we do a major renovation to prepare for spring blooms by cutting back the rose bushes. So this year we actually had record turnout of about 150 people. Um, In previous years before the pandemic, we'd had more like 40 to 50 people each year. Um, Since the pandemic, it's really grown. We've got a lot of interest, including interest of people of all ages. This has been a long tradition. I I think I read 40 years or so that that volunteers have been invited to trim the roses. Yes, at least that long. And how did that get started? I think it really is just that if we don't if we don't get help, it can take our staff weeks to get the roses prepared. Um, we've had a great relationship with the Santa Barbara Rose Society for more than that, I think around 60 years. And they've been helpful in spearheading this effort to get a volunteer day on the books so that every kind of all hands on deck to prepare the roses in, in one day. It's been a great partnership. Do you know how many roses, rose bushes there are? We have more than 1,500 rose bushes. So today we're at a downtown park. Yes. And unlike the Rose Garden, this park has uh, many different types of plants mm-hmm. and trees and also uh, ducks and birds because of, there's a small lake here as well. So describe this park and why it's special from a gardener's point of view. We are here at Alice Keck Park Memorial Garden. Um, This park is just outside of downtown Santa Barbara, across from Alameda Park and our very popular Kids World Playground. It was dedicated in 1980 um, by Alice Keck Park, and her wishes were that this would be a horticultural gem. And so we partnered with the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden at the time to develop this park. And... They really put a lot of thought into introducing species that 
were unusual but would do well in our, our climate. Now, many of the species that you see are used in private gardens, but at the time, a lot of these were um, very new. And it still is the crown jewel of our park system with just the variety of um, plants and trees. We have some very special trees here as well. And as you mentioned, we also have the pond and a, and a stream that I think you can hear. I'm talking with Jasmine LeBlanc from City Parks and Recreation. We're at Alice Keck Park Memorial Garden, sometimes simply called Alice Keck Park, which is a little confusing because Alice's last name was also Park. That is correct, yes. Alice Keck Park, perhaps she loved parks and gardens, in part because of her name, <laughs> um, wanted this to be a community memorial garden, and that is what it is. The park was designed by a landscape architect, Grant Castleberg. As I mentioned before, he was um, commissioned by both the city and the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden to really create something unique and beautiful here. And for the most part, his vision holds true. We've made several um, small adjustments to the park over the course of its history since 1980. We now have a partnership with the Master Gardeners, the Santa Barbara County Master Gardeners, who have a butterfly garden in one corner of the park that they maintain. We also transitioned one of our beds um, about 15 years ago to be a water-wise um, garden to really showcase using low water plants to get a beautiful situation. And we partnered um, to develop a sensory garden in the center of the park so that people even with um, low vision abilities are able to enjoy the park through their other senses, through touch, scent and hearing. There's a popular volunteer program at this park. Tell us a little bit about how that works. This park takes um, a lot of our staff effort to keep it looking beautiful, but we couldn't do it all without volunteers. So we actually have a program where people can come just show up with nothing at all or come with their gloves and favorite hand tools uh, Monday through Thursday from 9 to noon as well as the first Saturday of every month to come and assist our gardeners in keeping this park beautiful. So that can include everything from deadheading, mulching, weeding, and um, and plant, assisting with planting new plants. Are these experienced gardeners who, who are part of this program, how do they know what to do? Anyone can come and we've, we have staff on hand that are able to identify tasks for people who have absolutely no experience all the way through to very highly experienced gardeners. Um, there's something for everyone, including children, and it's a great opportunity for high schoolers to get their community service hours in. Um, as well. So Saturdays or, you know, weekdays in the summer are great opportunities for that. Oh, that's a great idea. Um, how big is your staff of gardeners? We have approximately 30 people that touch the park system in, a, um, in terms of garden maintenance. Uh, but that's for 60 locations. So 30 <laughs> so, staff for 60 yes. locations. Yes. Uh, no wonder That's why we could use some help. Yes. And yeah. do you know how many volunteers you have? I believe now we've had 80 people come and join us and help since we launched, relaunched this program in October. 
So we've had volunteers here since this park's inception in 1980, but during the pandemic, it really scaled back. It dwindled and we, it showed in this park. We started to see some deterioration of the landscapes. We really made an effort in the last year to bring this program back and try to make it as accessible as possible because we know that it's um, something that people enjoy and, and we can see the difference in the park. At this point in the conversation, Jasmine introduced Betsy, the city's volunteer coordinator, who was at work in the park. I'm Betsy Lape, volunteer coordinator at Alice Keck Park. Give us an idea of what, what you're doing here at the park right now and how you interact with the volunteers. We are doing park maintenance here. Uh, we meet with the volunteers at the shed in the morning at 9 in the morning, and then we go out on our daily tasks, which include uh, trail maintenance, which is raking and sweeping. Um, we do weeding in the planting beds. We do some trimming and pruning and um, just keep the park neat and tidy and safe for our visitors. And how many people are you supervising at a time? Um, on our Saturday groups, we have about 15. And then our daily groups, we have anywhere from two to five volunteers working with us. Is that a good number for you? Or are you anxious to have more people get involved? Oh, I'd love to have more volunteers. There's definitely a lot to do here at the park and we would love to have more people working with us. It's a, it's a lovely environment. I love spending the day here. I've met all the locals and their dogs and made good friends. Lots of dog kisses. Lots of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. You're it's great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. That was a conversation about volunteer opportunities for gardeners in the city of Santa Barbara. To learn more, go to the Parks and Recreation website. For Issues and Ideas, I'm Beth Thornton. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, there's a new novel out about the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today, we are joined by author, journalist, and novelist Roger Rappaport, who has a new book out, Searching for Patty Hearst, a novel. Welcome, Roger. Thanks. Great to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, how you came to write this book? Well, I covered the Patty Hearst case after she was kidnapped in um, February of 1974 as a journalist uh, and then an author. And I wrote a book with her uh, fiancé, Steve Weed, that was never published and then went on to interview her kidnapper, Bill Harris, after he was paroled from prison for the Oakland Tribune. And I've continued to follow the case. And this novel, Searching for Patty Hearst, is a sort of a 50th anniversary look at what really happened. I uh, happen to be, and I'm sure many people are the same, a big, big fan of history, but also historical fiction. I think it's intriguing and, and very satisfying that you've uh, chosen the path. In, in many ways, it's more dramatic to the reader, but also it's such a disparate tale. It's such a ball of yarn. There's very many loose ends to this. Tell us about this story. Delve into the book a little bit. Well, Patty has many identities, a super wealthy heiress, a rebel, a young bride-to-be, a kidnapping victim, a rape victim, a Stockholm Syndrome archetype, a criminal defendant, and ultimately a presidential pardonee. Um, this family, which, by the way, is the 11th wealthiest family in America today, uh, we're talking about uh, a family that has a value of about $30 billion. And, of course, they have substantial property uh, still to this day in your community. But I don't think most people realize how important Patty's story was as an archetype in a matter of 
weeks, she went from being a victim where people were praying for her, going to church. Uh, they were donating money to a free food program as part of the ransom effort. And then in one day, she suddenly announced uh, she wasn't coming home, that she was becoming a revolutionary and went on to rob a bank owned by a father's friend. And uh, this was a front page story mandated by her kidnappers as a condition of her release. So they literally turned the tables on this powerful empire. The empire itself was based on many uh, areas. Her family, for example, owned thousands of acres of uh, timberland up in Northern California around the town of McLeod. Newspapers, many, the San Francisco Chronicle and many others, uh, even today, it was a newspaper empire and her kidnappers used that against Patty, against the family, a sort of an extortion? Exactly. So Searching for Patty Hearst talks about why this family didn't just write a check for $4 million and bring her home. And there's a, a Steve Weed who lived in my house for a number of months, her fiance, um, the uh, their wedding announcement had appeared uh, as a small story in the in the paper. Basically, worked with the family trying to figure out how they could ransom her. But the delays in that process were basically part of her frustration because her kidnappers were explaining to her that four million dollars was like you know small change uh, for a family with this kind of wealth. Was this event? Was this? Symbionese Liberation Army. Was it one of the first examples of homegrown terrorism? Yes. And in fact, searching for Patty Hearst, we give a lot of time to that story because what you're what you're talking about is the evolution of an entire movement based on basically terrorist tactics, which have basically led to the arming of many people who are petrified by the, the prospect of this happening again. Did the SLA have a goal or goals uh, that are, you can articulate? Well, they only had, uh, it was a small group of white people with a black leader, uh, Donald DeFries, and uh, they knew they, that, that as one small group, they weren't going to get anywhere. And their idea was to capture the media. That was their real target. And of course, the failure to ransom Patty and then her decision to join and then fall in love with one of her kidnappers amplified the story. At one point, Brian, it actually knocked the Watergate scandal off the front page. That's how big it was. And uh, it's the classic captivity drama, which has a long literary tradition in American history, kind of the whole what the Klan is built around, you know, protecting our white women. And of course, this is a, a, a something that the Hearst papers exploited endlessly in their own coverage to the point, at one point, they actually sent a reporter to liberate uh, a woman who was in captivity in Cuba and then make the next big story of feeding the media diet. I do remember uh, these events, my own self, uh, reading about it in the newspaper. And, and I remember it's almost as though you're, you couldn't quite get a grip. There were so many odd angles to it and so many changes in midstream that even today it's very perplexing. I would like to remind everyone, I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we're joined by author, journalist, and novelist Roger Rappaport discussing his new book, Searching for Patty Hearst. So remember, Brian, when this, this was happening, the Hearst newspapers, which Patty famously told her father, nobody under 80 reads The Examiner, suddenly had a much younger audience. You can imagine what this did for the circulation of Hearst newspapers and, of course, television. And the point is that this story ran endlessly, and it gave the SLA and ultimately Patty a voice that they didn't have prior to this kidnapping, even though they'd been, been quite active in the community. It, it, certainly that had to be one of their goals was to publicize themselves, to publicize their, uh, what they were uh, trying to achieve, although uh, looking at it in retrospect, it seems... Uh, Seems to me amateurish, uh, just just kind of nutty. 
There were two main uh, violent events, were there not? That's correct. So prior to her kidnapping, um, they had assassinated the Oakland school superintendent over a disagreement about some security procedures involving badges for students. And that was how they first became known. And then, of course, this kidnapping. Ultimately, as you know, of that group of eight, two were already in jail by the time Patty was kidnapped. Of that group of eight, six of them ended up dying in an LAPD firefight just three months after the, the kidnapping. Patty was, of course, and two of the other kidnappers survived. And they became partners in crime, going on to rob well, first they did a kidnapping of a high school student, uh, and he's, by the way, is interviewed at length in my book, uh, in, in a fictional story. And then uh, they traveled to Pennsylvania and then came back to California and, and were involved in two bank robberies in Sacramento. So bank robberies, there was a sporting goods right. attack. And then this kidnapping of a high school student. So Patty went from being a victim to participating in a kidnapping in Inglewood. I think it might be helpful to understand the the beginning and the ending. Uh, February of '74 was the kidnapping, but they had been active prior to that. That's so correct. How how what was their heyday? How did that work out? Well, that basically they started in '73. This was when the assassination happened mm-hmm. in Oakland. That's the first time anybody knew them, and of course that was widely denounced by the left. They they saw this as a rogue operation. Uh, there was even conspiracy theories that it was a setup. They were trying to set up the the legitimate left. In in the book, we talk about all the antagonism that they engendered, not just with the general community, but within the left, because they felt this was really And so the denouement, when when she was finally captured, uh, when was that? How much? That was in September of 75. I see. And that's when she was arrested uh, and then convicted in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and went to jail for 22 months until she was uh, commuted by Jimmy Carter and then pardoned uh, by Bill Clinton. So about two and a half years, roughly. 22 months, right. And uh, yeah. I remember, um, of course, the pictures of Patty right. Hearst. And by the way, there's an amazing graphic on the front of the book uh, that I'm told uh, James Sparling created. It, I remember a picture of her in a beret holding a, a weapon of some kind. That's right. And uh, one interesting thing is uh, she learned how to shoot from her dad when she was nine years old. And that came in really handy. She saved probably the life of Bill Harris, who was uh, tackled by security guards at a sporting goods store in Inglewood. And she picked up a rifle and fired off about 30 rounds and saved him. Uh, so she was a hell of a shot. Well, looking back, um, I guess the, the novel itself is a looking back uh, in, in print form. But since we're here talking about the, those times, talking about the book, do you make any sense of it? I mean, what, what conclusions do you draw uh, from this whole affair? Well, there are multiple points of view reflected in the book, and I think the most important thing is what, what happens here every day is getting uh, different vantage points on the story, and then obviously the audience can then decide. I don't think there is a, quote, correct or true ver- version of events because there were so many people involved. And uh, the the I think the key point of this is to give equal time to all the different points of view uh, not just Patty and her kidnappers, but all the other participants who've gotten very little attention. And in the book, all of them get interviewed. And it's up to the reader uh, to decide what really happened. To me, it's it's almost, a, I would say, a, a necessity for people of our generation and younger to to take a look at this book. To, uh, in, in a way, it's it's our lives as they as it played out. Um, super important. You're going to be making book signings here on the Central Coast? So we have uh, signings coming up on the 30th 
of January and the 31st in San Luis Obispo and Atascadero. And all this information is on our website at pattyhurst.com or from the San Luis Obispo Library. And I just want to say uh, that this community and San Simeon are absolutely fascinating, not just to authors, but to the, to the world, because I think there's so much history here about this amazing, unique American archetype family in, in terms of what a success story in America really is. I hope people, too, know that when we think of Hearst Castle, we think of a state park, a historical landmark, and that's that's all true. But at one point, the Hearst family owned uh, something like 50 miles of coastline all the way in toward Hunter Liggett Military Reservation. Steve Hearst is still a uh, real estate magnate in the area. The Hearst family is bound up in our history, we as uh, residents of the Central Coast. I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by author and novelist and journalist Roger Rappaport talking about his new book, Searching for Patty Hearst. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman. Up next, Peace, Love, and Pets. Welcome to Peace, Love, and Pets. I'm Robin with Woods Humane Society. January is National Train Your Dog Month, so our guests today are Michelle Rizzi, Behavior and Training Manager at Woods Humane Society, and Cheryl Miller, Owner and Trainer at Springdale Pet Ranch. We have a lot of dog owners in this county and a lot of dog owners that invest the time into training, thankfully. There are lots of options for people in this area, and we are going to learn a little more about some of those options from our guests today. Michelle Rizzi has been a professional dog trainer since 2001. Michelle is a nationally certified pet dog trainer. Michelle began working with shelter dogs at the SPCA in Los Angeles in 2001. The following year, she moved to Salt Lake City, where she was the first trainer to introduce positive reinforcement training. With a strong background in training shelter dogs, Michelle is happy to be working at Woods Humane Society. Cheryl Miller, also a certified pet dog trainer, is one of the owners of Springdale Pet Ranch. She always loved dogs and always has had rescue and rehome dogs. She has a PhD in nutrition and spent many years in business. She decided to spend the last part of her working career with dogs. She completed the dog training course at Animal Behavior College and went back to also complete their service dog training program. Welcome, Michelle and Cheryl, to Peace, Love, and Pets. Thanks, Robin. (laughs) Okay, got an easy question to start off with. What is your favorite treat to use while training? Michelle? Well, I would say kibble would be the first choice if you're at home. Um, And if it works, that's great. Uh, If you need something a little higher value, maybe some Happy Howie or some nudges, I think is a good one. Or if you even have to go up to little pieces of chicken. Whatever it takes to get their attention and keep it. Some dogs will work for kibble, which is great. But right. when you're training or really working on some behavior stuff, some of that high value stuff is what, what does the trick. Absolutely. And Cheryl? I agree completely. You mean people need to work with both high value rewards and then regular value rewards so that the dog is getting a high value reward when, when it does something exceptional that you've been working on for a long time. So we always start with kibble. It's a great way to maintain caloric intake. We also use pet botanicals, training rewards. Most dogs love them. And for our high-value rewards, we go to cheese, hot dogs, and freeze-dried liver. That's the real good stuff. What is your most common call or concern currently from dog owners? 
At Woods, I get a lot of calls about dog reactivity, and that's specifically dogs that are on leash, and they walk by and see another dog or maybe a person or maybe a, a bicycle, and they just kind of go ballistic, you know, lunging and barking, and that's very difficult for owners to handle. All right, Cheryl. Well, Springdale focuses on basic obedience training, so a lot of people do call with dog reactivity. You know, we can take dogs that are reactive, um, but not highly reactive dogs. We will refer them to woods and other programs. But basic manners, big thing people want, and just simply loose leash walking, being able to walk my dog out in the neighborhood and not have it pull my arm off. Michelle, I would love if you could share who can participate in classes at Woods Humane Society and what is positive reinforcement? Positive reinforcement is the most humane way to train dogs. It's very effective. Dogs can learn a lot better when they're relaxed and not worried about some kind of punishment that could be uncomfortable or painful. So there is none of that. And positive reinforcement is just just not necessary, and it's not the best way that dogs learn. So we are 100% positive. And we do have classes that we offer for the um, general public, and they're mostly based manners classes, for instance. We have our flagship, I guess, is um, called Charm School. It's changing habits and reinforcing manners, and that's for dogs six months on. And then we have Spunky Sprouts for the adolescent dogs. That's for dogs six months to a year. Um, Petite Pals for little dogs under 20 pounds that get to play as well. And then we have specialty classes like the Feisty Fido and Fungility, you know, uh, intermediate classes and on up. So there's a lot of opportunity, but but basically, like Cheryl said, basic manners is first and foremost. Uh, a lot of people have a hard time dealing with the dogs that jump, that mouthy, and nipping and things. So we want to show them how to do that in a very patient and calm way, not to get things worked up and not to start fighting with your dog. No matter where you've gotten your dog, you can come to a class at Woods. I think we did start this many years ago for Woods dogs. Once they went out the door, we wanted to have something for them to come back to if they had problems. And uh, then it has extended to uh, the community, whether it's from Woods or wherever you get your dog, because we don't want dogs to come to Woods. Woods is a lovely place, but one want to keep them at home. So if they can just come and visit and learn a few tricks and, and how to handle things on their own, that's what we want, and that's why we're there. And let's talk about my absolute favorite class that Woods offers. It's the cutest class around. Let's talk about our puppy class, why that's so important, and a little bit about puppy socialization. Oh, yes. We call it a drop-in class because we don't have a six-week course where dogs have to come every week and learn something. That imprinting stage in a dog's life, it ends at about 13, 14 weeks or even sooner sometimes. So we really have to get the dogs exposed to things, other dogs, other puppies, playtime, people, obstacles, things that they can grow into uh, fear later in their lives. So we just try to give them everything, some desensitization, some handling. Every week, it's something different. Safe. It's Most a controlled important. setting because at that age, you can't take puppies to many places. As many years as I've been training, as many dogs as I've had, if I got a puppy today, I would find a well-run puppy class to take them to. And when we invest those first few months of their life and development, you're really imprinting on what they are going to be as an adult dog. As the, right. I mean, you're committing and, and you're taking on, hopefully, 
rightfully that responsibility, but and having some fun too. They get to play, they get to <sighs> rest, rumble and tumble with each other. You bring out the vacuum sometimes, the skateboard, right. the, you you bring out all the props. People just assume dogs are like pre-programmed to accept everything in this world, and and that's just not the case. Yes, that's right. We do have very high expectations <laughs> of dogs and puppies, but yeah, that's it. It is learning, but it's fun too. And and whether the dog's a puppy or ten years old, training should be fun. It should never be something that the dog does not want or the person is dreading. I mean, it has to be fun. Okay, Cheryl, tell us about Springdale. What options, what classes? Sure. Springdale Pet Ranch um, is located in Rio Grande, and we provide pet boarding, dog training, and doggy daycare. With regards to our training program, we provide basic training for the family dog. And our training philosophy focuses on positive reinforcement techniques, but again, we will individualize that training program for that dog. There's no one-size-fits-all training program for a dog, so we we really want to set the dog up to um, succeed and to echo a little bit of what Michelle said, we don't want those dogs going back to places like woods. So it's our goal to keep pets in their home. So we offer both play and train programs and stay and train programs for clients. We also offer field trips. They're mainly to the village or maybe to Petco where we can generalize cues. And we offer manner sessions and we offer enhanced daycare. So for our training clients that are, are finished with their training program, they can bring their dog back for daycare and get manner sessions every single day. Um, and I think the most important thing to know about our programs are the follow-up lessons. We always tell people the magic begins with the follow-up lessons. So we can train your dog but knowing is different than doing for any dog and we need to train the human companion for that dog so we want clients to come back weekly Um, we offer free follow-up lessons for the lifetime of the dogs dogs change as they get older you know puppy becomes a teenager a teenager becomes an adult dog environments change things change so we want you to bring your dog back we've taught dogs how to get in and out of cars on their own we've taught dogs believe it or not how to swim you know we we will train your dog to fit your lifestyle to the best we can honoring thresholds of the dogs and the and the breeds of the dogs so yeah that's what we focus just on that, at springdale just a few things, huh? <laughs> i can just interrupt yeah. robin i take my dog to springdale i absolutely love it and so does she well it's, that's that's that must be a big yeah dogs. that must be that a big heart. <laughs> shout out when a, a experienced trainer picks uh-huh. you to to take their dog to yeah. so that's awesome yeah. so cheryl sticking with you on that subject what is one kind of one thing you wish you could just tell dog owners or um, basically like a common mistake that they may make that you just wish you could just tell everybody, tell the world, this is your chance. I want everybody to know that there is no silver bullet in training. You cannot take your dog to any training program and then expect your dog to be trained. You know, these are living, breathing, thinking beings, and we need to make training a part of everyday life. So training, like Michelle said, should be fun. Training should be part of what you do every day. You know, it's simple things from just asking your dog to sit and wait before feeding. And you don't have to say, take it. You can make it fun. You can say, bon appetit, and they Mm -hmm. eat. You know, you can ask them to wait at doors by saying, excuse me, and training, excuse me, you know, things like that. So it should be fun. And, you know, pick the things that your dog likes to do and you can put those on cue and make it a lot of fun. My dog liked to jump up. I'm not going to tell him off all the time. So what I did is I put the word dance on cue. And so, you know, when I turn the music up and I want to dance at home, 
I can offer that and he can dance with me and I can say off and he's off and it's a fun thing to do. So just make it part of your everyday life. And Michelle, what is one thing that you think is so important to tell dog owners listening when it comes to training? Well, I always come back to our expectations. Uh, They are not human. They are a different species than us. And we really have a hard time believing that they don't know what we're saying. I always get this, I tell him, no bite, no bite, and he bites. And I want to know, what language do you say that in? (laughs) But yeah, just understanding things more from a dog's perspective. Uh, We want them to understand us, and they do need to be understood as well. Understand your dog Really, the more you understand, the better you both be. Michelle, you know, I've worked with you for almost a decade, and I, I would say it might be a pet peeve of yours. Am, am I okay to out this? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Repeating commands over and over. So you what are your sit, thoughts? Sit, sit, yeah, sit, 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 nope, sit, nope, sit, nope. <laughs> that's it. We're humans. That's what we do. Diluting the cue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more you talk, the less they're going to listen. Make every word count. If you're just joining us, this is Peace, Love, and Pets on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods, and our guest today, Michelle Rizzi, Behavior and Training Manager at Woods Humane Society, and Cheryl Miller, owner and trainer at Springdale Pet Ranch. What is the difference between enrichment and training? Michelle, we'll start with you. Well, training, certainly it's important for dogs to have manners and not to jump up or be, uh, you know, improper when greeting people. Um, But beyond that, enrichment is something that we provide to them, something they need, whether it's sniffing on a walk or just having to forage through a snuffle mat to get their food, um, anything like that. Understanding what the dogs need. They don't need to be right by your side on a walk. They need to sniff and explore. Now, we don't want them pulling. That would be training. We'll have to train them not to pull. But then let's allow them make some decisions and do the things that feel good for them. Sniffing is a big one. Um, That's probably the most important thing I think that people should realize. Um, Play, play with your dog, very important for bonding. Uh, Training absolutely is a good thing. Even, believe it or not, that is enrichment. When they learn to understand and communicate and that builds their confidence, they need that. We do a lot of enrichment with our shelter dogs because they're alone in their kennels so much and we we pull out all the stops but um, everything (laughs) i think at home people don't think about in enrichment like they think about exercise they think about feeding they think about offering them pets and love but there's a whole nother layer there that really interests the dogs and really excites their their dog ways about them and i know cheryl you guys offer enrichment in your your daycare routines as well is that right Right. Our motto is enrichment, engagement, and exercise. So, um, we're all, yeah, we're always trying to to keep those dogs engaged. We offer the daycare services, and so we're able to put what's for social dogs groups together and get them in play that's supervised. You know, with the doggy pool, and there's a lot of training that goes on during daycare. You know, you know, when you have six dogs coming to the gate, they need to know weight. They need to know out. But I really want to echo what Michelle says. Sniffing the olfactory sense of these dogs is very important. Um, You can just throw treats on the ground and let them find those. I think they say, if I remember right, 10 minutes of sniffing is worth a mile of walking. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So, so letting them use their nose um, is, is extremely important. Back in the day when I adopted my dog from Woods, he was a young Mastiff and it was my first 
big dog like that. I had a chihuahua before and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to walk five miles a day. I have to take him on 10 hikes. I have to do all these things because he's a big active dog. And then I would take him to our Saturday class with Michelle and he would be asleep in the car by the time we yes. like turned out of the parking lot for with like, you know, maybe 30 minutes of active training during the class. And I think people don't realize how tired it makes their dog also when they're actually learning. And so I guess that's maybe a good little tip. If someone's working on some things at home, we're not wanting people to to do four hours straight of training and obedience. Short spans of time, what would you recommend if someone's working on some basic training at home with their dog or wanting to incorporate into their daily routine? Exactly that. Incorporate it into your daily routine, right? You have to feed them anyway. You have to open the door. You have to take them for walks. Even just a simple thing like stay, try to do that on a walk that's not too distracting the environment. Just let them sit and stay for a few seconds and then keep on going. Don't come into the class and learn all these things and then go home and just resort to, you know, no, no, no. (laughs) Again, so let's use the things you know in real life. And I usually send out a packet at the end of each class with using real life rewards and it's called um, take it on the road so everything you've learned let's do this in real life situations so a few minutes here and there on your walk few minutes, few minutes before all, dinner yes. few minutes like few minutes incorporated here and there not hours of training your dog non-stop no and there should be very little difference between training and playing because yeah. it's fun i agree and i want to add to that end on a positive note train the dog that you have. So if your dog can only train for 10 minutes before your dog is tired, respect that 10 minutes. If your dog wants more, then, you know, give the dog more time. There there are no two dogs that are the same, but always end on a positive note. And they learn a lot when they process when they're sleeping. So come back the next day and you'll be surprised what they remember. I know there's a book that you wanted to mention that you really um, suggest. Culture Clash by Jean Donaldson. But this one chapter is wonderful about explaining how life must be for a dog living with humans. And I, I think it's beautifully written. Cheryl, did you want to add anything? There's no one right way to train a dog. So I think it's important to talk to a lot of people, stick within the world of positive reinforcement training, and work with what works for your dog. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, we will, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, happy you. Train Your Dog Month, which it should be that all year yes, round, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. And so as I wrap up here, I just want to uh, let you guys know, owning a dog is a joy and a privilege and a responsibility. If you are considering bringing a dog into your life, we love that idea and hope you consider adoption. Think seriously about the commitment that being a responsible dog owner entails, the financial commitment, as well as the emotional and time commitments that owning a dog requires. So if you're adding a new dog to your life or you have one already, there are a lot of training options in our area from basic obedience, individual private sessions, agility classes, nose work classes, and more. Look for a reputable positive reinforcement trainer and dogs of any age love to learn and they want to please us. So think about some things that you can do at home with your dogs. Uh, Keep to a schedule as best you can. Routine is so important to our pets. Consistency is key make time to play, switch out toys from time to time, 
Exercise is important, but remember to let them sniff on those walks and change up where you walk to keep things fun and exciting and new. Enrich with puzzle toys, Kongs, and scent games. We are their entire lives, so don't forget to have fun with those doggies. Thank you for listening to Peace, Love, and Pets on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods, and don't forget your new best friend is waiting for you at the shelter. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.